And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice became, came out of, a out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he shall suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they say to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. As I said, we're going to spend the next little while reflecting on this text together. Well, this past week, uh, Frankie, our assistant pastor who was just up here, sent me a screenshot of an advertisement he'd seen on Facebook. And it was an advertisement for uh, the website of what appeared to be a pseudo-Christian cult. And, and here was their basic offer. For $1 a month, I mean, you could pay $1,000 a month, but for at least $1 a month, they will tell you the secrets of the Bible that everyone except for them has missed. Now, he sends me this screenshot. I'm immediately intrigued. I go and find the website. I want to see for myself. And I discover, to my surprise, I also, too, am deceived. Everyone is deceived. And if I just give this website some money, they will let me in on the secret truth that will change everything in my life. Well, I immediately tried to sign up a pastor friend for their email list, but credit card details and things interfered with it. But, but I, th I think it's interesting, this notion, a secret truth revealed only to a few. When we see that on the internet, we're like, that smells fishy. <laughs> there, there, there's something wrong with that. It smells even worse if I have to enter my credit card details. We don't believe it when we see it on the internet. But also, strangely, that's kind of how this passage begins. Because Jesus takes only a few people up a mountain, and they're going to experience something pretty unique. Now, one of the main differences, is, besides, you know, it being Jesus and everything, is that he says, only hold on to this experience until the proper time comes, and then you can publish it to anyone who will listen to you. But the disciples, as we know, they're not going to try to profit off this truth. They're not going to use it for glory or power. Uh, the truth will come out once Jesus, uh, once the Son of Man is resurrected. But nevertheless, I just think it's interesting. This is a story of a secret being revealed to a select few. On the mountain, the text tells us, Jesus was transfigured right in front of these three disciples. And the Greek word there is just the word metamorphosis, which you probably heard before. It just means transformation. 
Transformation. And this is a pretty significant event in the life of Jesus. We're going to look at it this morning from a couple different angles. First, I want to talk about the particulars of it, so the details, kind of what happened. Then we'll talk about the meaning of it. What, is, what does it all mean? And third, we'll talk about the, what I'm going to call the reversal of the transfiguration. First, the particulars. The passage starts by informing us six days have passed since the previous event in the Gospel of Mark. That's unusual for Mark. If you've been with us for this series, you know he's always saying immediately this or immediately that or right away or anything. But then all of a sudden, almost a whole week goes by. And really, if six days have passed, then it's actually the seventh day. And biblically, whenever we run into a seven, we're, we're, we're kind of cued to think this is a number of completion, it's a number of perfection, and by mentioning this time frame, I think Mark's just setting us up to look for something, something unusual, something important is about to go down. On the seventh day, Jesus takes three disciples up a mountain, Peter, James, and John. These three are always named first in the list of the disciples. They appear with Jesus at particularly important moments. They never get a nickname like, you know, the inner circle or the big three or anything like that. But they get to see things about Jesus no one else, including the nine disciples, get to see. But in a larger sense, the pattern of Mark's gospel is the greater the revelation, the more you see about Jesus, the fewer people get to see it. It's like an inverse relationship. If you have a whole bunch of people, like a crowd, they only get a little glimpse of Jesus' identity. And when Jesus does a miracle, uh, like last week when he healed the blind man, he just he keeps shushing them. You know, don't, don't tell anyone, don't spread the word. The more you get to see, the more that is explained, the fewer people get that. And these disciples, these three, Peter, James, and John, they see more than even the other nine. So again, a scene with Jesus and only three disciples, something else is important. Something else is going to be unveiled here. Then he leads them up a high mountain. And as you heard read in our first scripture reading today, biblically speaking, mountains are where people meet with God often. Abraham met with God on Mount Moriah when he almost sacrificed his son Isaac. Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. We read that one this morning. Elijah also goes to Mount Sinai. He hears God speak to him in a still small voice. And now Jesus ascending a mountain with friends. Again, the pattern's clear. There's going to be a dramatic encounter, probably. But then without much lead up, Mark tells us in verse 2, on the mountain Jesus was transfigured. Metamorphosis. Meta means form or appearance. Morph, morphosis means, you know, change. Like a butterfly emerging from its cocoon, Jesus' appearance was changed. And the main place they saw that change was in his clothing. The clothing is almost glowing. It's lit from within. It, it, Mark says it had a purer and brighter essence than should have been possible. Um, it's like there's not enough bleach in the world to get clothes that white. That's what Mark tells us. And this transformed Jesus, this metamorphed Jesus stands in front of them. And at the same time, Moses and Elijah show up. And it says they're talking to Jesus. So long dead heroes, these leaders of Israel are, are there on the mountain. Now it's interesting, if you go back and read the stories, no one knew where Moses was buried. Because Exodus tells us that God buried him somewhere on a mountain. And Elijah was never buried, if you read the story, because God took him to heaven in this flaming angelic chariot. Two very unusual endings to life, no doubt. But either way, thousands of years have passed since these men walked the earth. And yet two of them are here speaking to Jesus. And then Peter starts to talk. Oh, and Peter, isn't he just so great? Just 
jamming his foot into his mouth. Maybe you had this experience, something uncomfortable is happening, you're scared, and words just start coming out of your mouth, and you don't know what you're saying, it doesn't make any sense. That's what Mark says Peter is doing. It's like, he didn't know what he was saying. He's blurting out stuff about tents. Are we staying over? And we don't know what Peter's motivation is. Is he trying to prolong the experience? Is he thinking, hey, this mountain is going to be the new headquarters of the mission? I don't know. But verse 6, so honest, so great. He didn't know what to say. And they were terrified. So Peter's talking, but James and John, also scared for the record. And I'm not sure if we've covered this recently in our Mark series, but it's pretty likely that Mark's gospel was based largely on the testimony of the Apostle Peter. And if that's true, then I love how Peter is just kind of like achingly honest. That when he sat down with Mark to tell this story, he's like, I was terrified. <laughs> I was talking. I said some crazy things, you know. But he's like, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what was going on. But either way, Peter finishes talking no one responds to his suggestions. <laughs> Moses and Elijah are just like, you know, ignoring him or whatever. And, and then a cloud overshadows the whole group. A voice tells the disciples, listen to the beloved son. And then sort of as quickly as it starts, it's over. They're like, they look around. Moses and Elijah are gone. The voice, the cloud, you know, dissipated. It's just the disciples and Jesus. And in verse 9, Jesus says, hey, don't say anything about this until after the resurrection. So these are the particulars. This is what happened on the mountain. And I want to begin this morning by just saying, this is a strange story. Like if you came into church this morning with little or no Christian background, you would probably think this sounds more like a drug trip than a factual account. I mean, let's just do a little experiment together. Imagine a friend of yours is hiking this weekend, and they drove off into Algonquin Park, and they were going to hike up Manitou Mountain. It's more of a hill, but it's the highest point in Algonquin. And they've gone there for the weekend, a couple friends, you know, they packed all their camping stuff. And tomorrow morning, you see them at work, and you say, hey, how was, how was camping weekend? How was hiking? And imagine this friend told you the story. Man, it was pretty crazy. We hiked up to the summit, and then one of the guys who was hiking with us, his clothes just turned bright white. And then all of a sudden, John A. McDonald and Terry Fox were there on the mountain just with us. And they were all talking together. And then this, this thunderstorm rolled through and it spoke to us and it told us things. And you're just staring at your friend like, I think professional help is going to be required. You know, like this is just a, just a, were you on anything? Like, do you need to see someone? It's just kind of a crazy story. And I don't think we need to be embarrassed about this. I'm not making fun of the Bible. I'm just saying it's strange we have limited witnesses, we have a transforming Jesus, we have appearing and disappearing ancient heroes, and we have an unexplained voice. So what we have actually is three miracles, four if you include Moses and Elijah disappearing. And so this morning, if you're like, I'm kind of a bit dubious, <laughs> then at least you understand what the Bible is trying to do. The Bible's not offering you a metaphor, it's not offering you a parable, not offering you a drug trip. The Bible's insisting by means of eyewitness testimony, a four-miracle event happened. So your, your imaginary friend, he, he isn't kidding. He's serious. So really, a story like this pushes us to answer a, a deeper and I think harder question, which is, does God exist and does he intervene in the created world like this? 
Because if he does exist, if he does sometimes show up like this, then the story makes sense. Like, okay, I can accept it. There's a God who does these things. But if he doesn't exist, if he exists only in a far-off sense, then of course this story sounds like an ayahuasca vacation. So I think the least we can do today is take the Bible on its own terms. And it's to take it seriously. And that's a good reminder whether you're very new to Christianity or if you've been doing this a long time and trusting the Bible for years. This story kind of pushes us. It's one of those ones. Because this story tells us of a God who is involved in his creation, who can summon ancient heroes to mountaintops, that there's spiritual realities hidden from our eyes. And most importantly, there is more to Jesus than meets the eye. So with the particulars in place, let's move to the next question. Of what does the transfiguration mean? What does it mean? Why is it here? What do we learn about Jesus from it? What does it change for us? I want to look at the three miracles to kind of give us some guidance. So we'll talk about the clothing, the Moses and Elijah, and the voice, kind of what they mean. So the clothing, clothing change, right? Radiant, intensely, unearthly white. Why does that matter? What is that telling us? Well, if you are a Bible person, if you have some familiarity with the scriptures, quiz time, does that description spark anything in your mind? Does it, does, it, does it remind you of any other passage? Where else do we read of such clothing? Well, if you were here last week, <laughs> we read from Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 is a prophecy. It's a vision of the future. And it says there, the Ancient of Days, which is the name for God, is sitting on a throne opening the books of judgment. And do you know how the Ancient of Days is described? Daniel 7, chapter 9, it says this. The Ancient of Days took his seat and his clothing was as white as snow. When Daniel is saying, you know what God looks like in all of his glory? The first description of the Ancient of Days is his clothing is unearthly white. See, if you were a Jewish reader, if you were a Jewish disciple, and you knew, you maybe had memorized or you'd read many times what Daniel's vision, you would have immediately grasped the significance of Jesus' transformation. When, when the curtain of the physical world is pulled back on the mountain, they're like, oh, I know who this is. <laughs> this reminds me of something, and it reminds me of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That on the mountain with them is, is the glory of God, the presence of God. And it's a reminder for us that Jesus, though coming in human form, he was God. And I think that especially matters when, as we, as we read last week, when, when he promises his people things like, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. I think it matters then. See, sometimes in the muck of life, we forget who is making us promises in the gospel. We look around at our culture, our street, our world, our, our, our family, our friends, or whatever, and it all seems very persuasive and very powerful and very convincing. And we can forget that there is a God who sits on a throne of fire with a face like lightning and clothes that glow. And he is the one who promises, if you deny yourself and take up your cross, you will be saved. See, the transfiguration of Jesus is revealing that God the Son is on the mountain. Okay, what about Moses and Elijah? What does their appearance mean? Well, I don't think this first thing I'm going to talk about is the most, most important meaning or most important aspect, but I think it can be an encouragement about life after death. These men had died centuries, millennia even beforehand, and yet they casually show up on a mountain to talk to Jesus. I wish we knew what they talked about, but either way, they are very much alive. 
Now, there are lots of fun theories about why Moses and Elijah. There's an internet rabbit hole there if you need something to do this afternoon. But think about it. Why not Isaiah? Why not Abraham? Why not King David? He seems kind of important. And to be clear, the Bible does not say why these guys and not other guys, but I think we can make a couple connections. Elijah was, was possibly the most famous prophet Israel ever had, but he was not a writing prophet like, like Jeremiah or Isaiah, Ezekiel. He was a miracle-working prophet. And if you read the books of, book of Kings, the miracles are astonishing. Really, in, in the scope of the scriptures, only Jesus surpasses them. Because Elijah, by the power of God, was healing sick people. He's raising dead people. He's he's multiplying food and oil. He's calling down fire from heaven. See, he parallels Jesus not uh, because Jesus was not a writing Messiah. He was a miracle-working Messiah. Now, he taught a whole lot of stuff, but other people wrote it down. He didn't write much down as far as we know. On the other hand, Moses did, did some miracles. He's, he's kind of known for them. But he's best known for leading the Israelites out of Egypt and for receiving the law of God on Mount Sinai. And so it's common for biblical scholars to hold up Moses and Elijah as representative Moses of the law and Elijah of the prophets. And in the, especially in the era of Jesus, this little phrase, the law and the prophets, or the law and the prophets, to get my, get my hands right, it was shorthand for referring to all of Israelite Jewish history or or just the scriptures. And for instance, if you go read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And I think by Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, it's showing he's not abolishing them. uh, He's not destroying them, but he's fulfilling them. See, Jesus doesn't sort of wrestle and and overcome Moses and Elijah on the mountain. He, He speaks with them. And I think it's a couple thoughts for us then. Firstly, this should be an encouragement for us to read and understand the Old Testament. To understand Jesus means to understand how he fulfills and completes the roles that Moses and Elijah and David and Aaron and all the rest played. The Old Testament doesn't exist like a beta version of software. That's not useful. And now we have the full version anymore. No, no. It's essential. It's necessary. It sheds a lot of light on who Jesus is. But the second thought is that when Peter and James and John, when they fully understand who he is and with whom he speaks, they are speechless and terrified. To fully understand Jesus means a healthy fear of who he is. Not someone to be trifled with, not someone to be taken lightly. He may be gentle and lowly, as we're reading this summer, but he's awesome and mighty. And if reverent fear doesn't sort of slide through your heart every now and then, it may be possible you're neglecting this part of Jesus's identity. The third miracle is the voice from the cloud. Now, based on the fact that this voice calls Jesus my beloved son, we understand that this is the voice of God the Father speaking. But picture it. Uh, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah kind of standing together talking. The disciples somewhere nearby in terror and awe. And the voice tells the disciples to listen to Jesus. Now, if you were Jewish, I'm not sure that's what you would expect the voice to say. Think if you were Jewish, you might expect, hey, Elijah and Moses are important. We should listen to them. Maybe listen more to Jesus, but those guys are good too. I mean, imagine on the stage this morning, we lined up three pastors, and they're all pretty impressive. But then I told you, hey, um, could you listen to the first guy? That could be kind of confusing for, for the other guys who are here. Like, what, I don't have anything important to add or whatever? But the voice of God is telling us something very important. As impressive as Elijah was, as important as Moses was, none of them hold a candle to Jesus. 
Don't bother listening to these resurrected saints. What you need to do is listen to Jesus. And that's important. It seems like this event was just set up to remind these disciples who Jesus is and to listen to him. He's more important than Moses. He will do greater works than Elijah. They were great. Jesus is better. Because if you go read Moses and Elijah's stories, they had their moments of faith and, and great work, and God used them, but they weren't perfect. Elijah, doubtful, fearful. Moses got angry. He, had, he, had a, he actually had a violence problem. Jesus is better. And you know, we dwell in the age of famous pastoral failures, don't we? Very impressive speakers and teachers and leaders who have uh, moral and spiritual failings. And I've read the books and I've listened to the talks by many famous uh, teachers and preachers. Many of you do as well. This is a good reminder to us to weigh these appropriately. Because is your favorite internet preacher more impressive than Moses? Is he more charismatic and, and dynamic than Elijah? No chance. <laughs> so if he can't hold the candle to them, what about Jesus? God the Father tells us, listen to Jesus, even though Moses and Elijah are right there. What does the transfiguration mean? It means God has come in the flesh. The ancient of days is a human, and we should listen to him. Now, part three, the reversal of the transfiguration. Everything winds down. The voice stops speaking. Moses and Elijah disappear. Presumably, Jesus' appearance returned to normal. We're not told that, but we can presume it. And they go back down the mountain, and Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. As ever, he's sort of pacing his unveiling. It's not time yet. The the, the whole world can't know what's going on. And again, I appreciate here the humanity of the disciples. I personally have about 100 questions about what happened. But Mark tells us they're they're confused about Jesus' statement. They're like, we have a question about the rising from the dead part? Like, you don't have any questions about why Elijah was there? <laughs> Nothing about the clothes strike you as interesting? Like, does he wear those underneath? Like, I have, I have a few questions about what's going on. But in verse 11, this is the question they go to Jesus with. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, that's this reference to this prophecy in Malachi. We covered it very early, actually, the first sermon in the Mark series, I think, that, that Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord. But how this question relates to the transfiguration... I don't really know. Maybe they saw Elijah and they're like, oh yeah, what about that prophecy? You know, it's unclear. But Jesus tells them, yes, Elijah will come. He'll restore all things. But then Jesus adds a question. Do you see that? How is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, even as he answers them, yeah, Elijah's coming. It also seems like he's correcting them. They are worrying about some details, who the second Elijah is, if he has come. And Jesus wants them to remember the Son of Man will suffer. He will be treated with contempt. And it makes for an odd ending to the episode. But I think Jesus is trying to get them to wrestle with a paradox. How is it that God himself, The glorious Jesus they saw on the mountain will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. How can both of those things be true? In the uh, late 1950s and early 1960s, sound and music were revolutionized by stereo sound. And maybe if you're old enough, you'll remember up until that point, sound was mono, which just basically means the same noises come out of as many speakers as you plug in. But stereo sound changed that. Now a producer could put different mixes of music in you know, the right or left speaker. 
And that's still true today. And if you listen to music with headphones, you'll sometimes hear it. The music isn't the same in each ear. And good producers, good music producers, will, will change what each ear hears to enhance the experience. I think the transfiguration is trying to get the disciples and us to listen to Jesus in stereo. See, in one ear, we, we see, we hear him as God, as the mighty one, the ancient of days with, with shining clothes eclipsing all of our heroes. And at the same time, a different arrangement of music should be playing in our other ear. We also see him suffering, being treated with contempt. And if you're to get the whole Jesus, if you're to hear all of him, you have to listen to him in stereo. If you only get a mono gospel, if you only have one earbud in, you're going to be unbalanced. See, if you only listen to the radiant clothes, Jesus, you might get overly proud. You're going to get overly triumphalistic. Or maybe you'll just even be scared of that Jesus. You'll become all about winning. But if you only have this one in and you only get the suffering, Jesus, you may get overwhelmed with the world or overwhelmed with your lives and not be able to trust his power and his might. And so what Jesus is saying is we have to listen to him in stereo, to, to hear him both in his exaltation and his, in his humiliation. See, if we are to see Jesus, we must understand that this trip up the mountain is a kind of foreshadowing of the cross. And here's why I call it the reversal of the transfiguration. Because when Jesus goes to die, he will go outside a city to a hill, just like he did here. But instead of a private event with a few friends, it will be a public revealing of everything. Instead of being escorted by friends and disciples, he will be abandoned by them for an escort of soldiers and a mob. Instead of talking quietly with two of history's greatest men of faith, he will be surrounded by two common criminals who yell at him and revile him. Instead of being clad in, in radiant, shining garments, he'll be stripped of all garments. Yet even at the cross, even as he dies, his identity will be undeniable, but instead of a voice from a cloud, the confession of his identity will trip out of the mouth of a Roman guard. Surely this was the Son of God. So to pick up Jesus' question, how is it that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's because the Son of Man intends it. The Son of Man is going to choose it because he's going to have the power to make it happen. Why will he give up his glorious clothes for no clothes at all? Because he loves us. Why will he give up the friendship of Elijah and Moses for the companionship of Roman guards to, to accomplish our forgiveness? Why will he, he give up the presence of his Father that he might become sin for us? So my hope for you this morning is for you to hear Jesus in both ears. No parlor tricks, no metaphors, no drug trips, but a short transformation to show us a God who is both mighty and humble, strong and gracious. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful and we are grateful for the whole Jesus that we see in this transfiguration, the ancient of days come in human form, not to squash us, not to condemn us, but to die for us. Help us to see everything, to hold both parts in tension. Help us to believe it. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.